All right, so we're going to start reading. We ended last week with verse 11, but we're going to start with verse 10 just for context. Let's start reading in verse 10. This is God's word. It says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I, that's the Apostle Paul, laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you know that do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If any one among you thinks he, that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. You may be seated. As always, I encourage the taking of notes during this time in our meeting, because this is the time when you've just heard God speak his word to us. And uh, if you're taking notes, the title of this sermon is Building a Church That Lasts. Building a church that lasts. In the city of Garden Grove in northern Orange County, California, stands a 78,000 square foot tall, uh, not tall, square foot tall cathedral, which at the time of its completion in 1980 was touted as the largest glass building in the world. The Crystal Cathedral was the dream of the hugely popular televangelist Robert Schuller. It was an architect- architectural marvel. It was covered by some 10,000 panes of glass that were glued, not bolted, to the structure so it could withstand uh, up to an 8.0 magnitude earthquake. Schuller himself preached a, a message that was appealing to the masses. He preached a message of positive thinking, which he inherited from uh, the original positive speaker, Norman Vincent Peale. He preached a message of self-love. Schuller purposely avoided going deep in theology, and he said so in his sermons. He avoided talking about people's need for a savior for their sin. His TV program, The Hour of Power, reached millions. But somewhere along the line, things began to crumble, no pun intended. Schuller was uh, reportedly 
very authoritarian in the way that he led his church. He was demanding. Uh, On screen, he appeared to be full of joy, but behind the scenes, he was aloof and harsh with those who worked for him. Uh, His family, who was very involved in ministry, uh, argued and bickered constantly. And by 2010, the church filed for bankruptcy, and a year later, the Catholic Church actually bought the building, renamed it Christ Cathedral. Now it's an even more pretty building. And Mr. Schuler died four years later after that bankruptcy at the age of 88. Now I start with that story, friends, because I want to make the point that it is possible to build an outwardly impressive ministry, but yet it still can be one that lacks real substance. Mr. Schuler built a beautiful, shiny ministry focused on the praise of the strength and of the ingenuity of man, but for all of its supposed strength, it crumbled into the dust. Paul the Apostle does not want this for his beloved church in Corinth. Paul is jealous for his church family. And just like a a father who's watching out for his son and, and trying to keep him from hanging out with the wrong crowd, Paul sees danger waiting for this church. If they're going to focus on building a cool church, one that's built on the gospel of human wisdom instead of one that's built on the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And Grace City Church, I can speak for your pastors when I say we are jealous for this church. There is a temptation, especially in church planting, to build a cool church, to build a relevant church, church, to build an impressive church. But I remember very early on, we were given some very wise advice, and it probably passes through my mind at least once a week. And this wise man told us, listen, what you attract people with, you are going to have to keep them with that same thing. If you attract people with exceptional things, exceptional music, exceptional programs, exceptional ministries. Guess what? You better not mess those things up because those are the reasons that people are coming to you. Those are the reasons why people keep coming and why they keep gathering. But if you attract people with the simple message of a meek Savior who gives people life not by becoming a glamorous king, but by dying. Aaron said to us earlier, Christian strength is actually weakness. And it's weakness because we follow after a Savior who also died in weakness. If you attract people with that message, that message is going to keep them and it's going to change them. Do you know why? Because we are all weak. We are all needy people. Don't you believe for a second the message that your Instagram feed teaches you day in and day out. You're strong. Just try harder. You can do this. Girl, you've got this. 
Bro, you've got this. Guess what? You don't. You don't. That's why we need that message. That's why we need this Savior. And this is true of any church. Friends, if we keep the main thing, the main thing, what will happen when storms come? When storms come, the building may shake. The building, that's us, not this building, us. We may shake, we may quake, but we will stand fast. We will last because we are built not on the wisdom of men, but on the wisdom of God and the power of God. That's been Paul's message in these opening chapters to this church in Corinth. Today there are, I think, three ideas that he wants this church to embrace as they consider what it means to build a church that lasts. Three ideas, I'm going to give them to you here up front, and then they're just three words, and then we'll go along and study each of them. The first is responsibility, the second is identity, and the third word is generosity, and we'll find out what that means. Responsibility, identity, and generosity. Let's look at the first responsibility in verses 12 through 15. Now, last week we saw in verses 10 and 11, Paul there frames the argument that he's going to use for the rest of the chapter. He says essentially this, there is only one foundation that the church is founded on, and that is Christ. It's not founded on men. It's not founded on programs. It's not founded on a presbytery. It's not founded on a session or a board. It's founded on Christ. And that church will be stable only if you build that church on Him. You can't expect to be healthy Christians if you start your journey way back there by faith in Jesus alone, but then try to grow up spiritually by relying on yourself. You're not going to start with Christ and then grow up spiritually by relying on spiritual experiences. Something that happened to you at a conference 20 years ago You're not going to grow up into Christ by relying on the different things that you do with your life, your exercises, your spiritual exercises, reading the Bible and prayer and Christian fellowship. Those are all good means, but they're not the source. The source is Christ. And so to continue building on this metaphor that he started in verse 12 of a building, he essentially says to his readers, which are the the leaders and the members of the church at Corinth, you have a responsibility. Your responsibility is to build a church, again, not a physical building, but to build a church, to build lives in such a way that when you stand before God at the end of time, He will judge you as a faithful worker, a faithful worker. That's the idea He's getting at, verse 12, verse 13, let's read that again. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, who is Christ? With gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So what's the deal? Paul says, as Christians, we're always working. We're we're always building. But there's coming a day when all the things that we do will be evaluated. Every single thing that we do will be evaluated on that day, like, 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 a, like a dark room and a bright light being shot on at the flick of a switch, that day is going to expose, it's going to reveal what sort of work that we have done. Paul, of course, is referring to the last day, the day of judgment. The day of judgment is a, 
a, a term that's used frequently throughout the Old and New Testament. Friends, you, you cannot escape the day of judgment. It's a day coming when God will judge both the living and the dead. Solomon talked about it way back there in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 12, he said, God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Jesus will stand as the judge, John 5, 2 says. And final judgment will be weighed by the quality of one's actions done while they were in their bodies on earth. Psalm 62 says that. Romans 2 says that. He will render to each one according to his works. We're always working. We're always working. See, friends, a person's works, a person's deeds, according to the Bible, according to God, are the evidence of either spiritual life in someone or spiritual death. That's all they are. Our works do not save us. But like evidence presented in a courtroom during a trial, God will use them to evaluate us in His judgment. Now, if you're not a believer in Jesus... If you're an unbeliever, your works, your deeds will give evidence that you rejected Jesus as the only way to God, that you trusted in yourself to save you. And God's verdict will be just punishment for the evil deeds that you have done, not done in faith in Him. For the believer, the verdict has already been handed down. The believer has already trusted in Christ to save them. They've rejected themselves, as it were, to save them. They've trusted in Christ to save them. And they've received His imputed righteousness. So at the judgment, the believer will be rewarded, not punished according to the deeds done while in the body as the fruit of their faith in Jesus while they were on the earth. The last day is the day when every deed will be exposed. Every secret thought, every intention of the heart. Paul says in verse 13, just as Fire proves the quality of precious metals like gold and silver, burning away the dross, burning away the impurities. On that day, everyone's work will be put through the fire test. And that test will reveal whether or not that work was of a quality fit for heaven or otherwise. Again, I, I have to be clear here. I, I I recognize how that may sound if we take this text by itself. Our actions, our works that we do while we're alive right now cannot save us. God isn't keeping tally of the good and the bad and then one day He's going to go, okay, I guess you're good enough. You get on in. You're definitely not. You don't get in. Okay, you're good. Yeah, you come on in. Your works cannot save you. Your works only reveal what is already true of you. Your works reveal the object of your trust in your life. Was it Jesus? 
Did we trust His works? Did we trust His sacrifice? So our outward lives will become fruit of that inward trust? Or did we live in a way, even in a good way, maybe we were a person that helped people, but to us, Jesus was only a name, one that if it was removed from our lives and our lips, it would make no difference at all. We'd be the same person. There are a lot of works done in this world, friends, that have the name Jesus mixed in, that if you took his name out, they'd be the same exact things. There's a lot of good deeds being done in this world, not in the name of Jesus, not because of changed hearts that have been changed by him. There's a lot of good. Not all of it points to Christ. Many of you know the story of Amy Carmichael, an amazing little woman who served for 55 years as a missionary in India without furlough. There's a story about her young life while she was still in Belfast, Ireland, Ireland, in an upper-class part of town. One Sunday, she was walking home with her family from worship, and there was this sort of old beggarly woman that had a big load on her back, and she was stumbling under the weight of it, and and she ran over, they, and her brothers ran over to help this woman take up this load and cross the street. And as she was helping this woman, she looked around and she noticed some of the more upper-class people with surprised looks on her, their faces, surprised that they would go touch this woman, and Amy could feel her face get flush with embarrassment. So she finished helping the lady, and she kept walking along thinking about that moment, thinking about her embarrassment. There came a point that she was walking along and she walked by this fountain and she heard behind her an audible voice, an audible voice that said, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. Because the fire will test each one's work, what sort of work it is. Of course, she did what we would all have done. She turned around to find that there was no one there. And she knew that it was the Lord speaking to her. She went home that day. She shut herself up in her bedroom by herself. She opened up the Bible to 1 Corinthians 3. She poured over that scripture. She dealt with God and God dealt with her. And a few hours later, when she came out of her room, she came out resolved that from that day forward, she would live her life building only things that last. And she did. And she did. But friends, you don't have to be a missionary to India to build something that lasts. Friends, we have Paul saying, church, you have one responsibility. You have one job. Build that which lasts. I think we can infer from these verses that the quality of one's work has everything to do with the foundation that he or she is building on. Friends, answer this question in your heart. Is your life, does your work, is your work worthy of Christ? Does our work, does my work reflect His character? 
Does my being a husband, being a father, being a friend, being a pastor, does that work reflect Christ and his self-effacing, self-sacrificing heart? That's what we have to answer. If it does, we, friends, we are building with gold. We are building with silver and precious stones that will stand the fire test on the last day. Listen, friends, we can do a lot of good work that draws a lot of attention to how great we are. But before God, those things won't pass the fire test. That's all woodwork. That's all wood level work. It's straw work. Oh, we, we can still be a Christian. Salvation is a work of grace. Don't get that, that wrong. It's an outward in work of grace. But friends, Paul says our work will be burned up on the last day. Why? Because we've shown glory and light on our skill and our work ethic if it wasn't done for the glory of Jesus' name. Grace City Church, in all of our deeds, and all of our conversation, are we making much of Christ? Do people leave our presence thinking things like, oh, that guy is funny, or that lady knows herself well, or that guy is gifted, or do they leave our presence having barely seen us because we were hiding behind Christ. Because our words deflected, our actions deflected, our words pointed to Him. Church, that's our calling. That's our responsibility. We must pay close attention to how we build. Now, Paul starts to, no pun intended, build on this idea to be careful how we build, we need to realize who we are. And that's this next idea he brings up, this idea of identity. Identity. It says in verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? All right, this is clearer in the original, but this is a rebuke of this church. He's saying in so many words, don't you know who you are? I think that you have forgotten, and he's saying you, that word you is is plural in the Greek. You, you are God's temple. You've forgotten all this bickering, all this fighting, all this one-upmanship, all this joining together with little fan clubs inside the church. You're dividing the church. Don't you know who you are? You're God's temple. The Spirit of God dwells in you, plural. This temple imagery would not be missed by either Jew or Greek. The Jews would have automatically thought of the temple in Jerusalem which, by the way, was made with gold, silver, and precious stones. They would have thought of the sacrifices that were being offered there. They would have thought about the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwelt and where the high priest could only enter once a year. Oh, and the Greeks, they would have thought about the the smorgasbord, the, 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 the buffet of pagan temples that Corinth had to offer. These were places also where their former gods used to dwell. 
Paul's use of this temple imagery, friends, is, is meant to invoke a sense of sobriety in this church. Every one of these people he's writing to was rescued from their former lives of self-worship, false worship, going to places where they, th- they thought they could visit with their God. Paul says, no, now the reverse has happened. God has come not just to visit with you, but to live in you. Now, Paul's going to talk about this on an individualistic level. The Spirit lives in us individually. He'll talk about that in chapter 6. But here he's talking about the assembly, the gathering of the saints in Corinth. Friends, every time the church gathers, God is present there by His Spirit. Every time the New Testament people of God gather locally, God is there. Not because they are somehow clean or holy by their own doing, but because God has washed these men and women by the blood of Jesus. And the Jewish temple, the only way you could be in the assembly was if you offered up an animal, if blood was shed. Paul is saying, by virtue of the grace that's been given you in Jesus, by His once and final sacrifice, you are now the temple. You don't visit it. You are the final place of God's dwelling. Friends, that's why a Sunday morning meeting space, as important as it is, is just merely a functional aspect of our life together. This place is a building within which the temple of God is temporarily housed from 8 to 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock on Sunday mornings. This is a place where the story of redemption is declared because the true church, the actual place where the Spirit of God dwells is is in us. It's not 1121 South Front Street per se. Yes, God's everywhere. He's omnipresent. That's not what I'm talking about. God is present with us in a specific way when we gather. So when what matters is not buildings. It's not storage space. It's not classrooms. What matters is that when we come together, friends, you and I are a life-giving alternative to the temporary pleasure of plastic happiness that exists out there in our city because God is in our midst. And because of this reality, Paul isn't compelled to give his harshest warning yet. In verse 17, he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Here Paul seems to be speaking to certain leaders in the church who are turning away, from, turning away the church there from the pure milk of the gospel to junk food alternatives. What's he saying? He's saying that when the church's leaders diminish Christ and magnify themselves, they desecrate the temple of God. And we can all think of leaders, preachers, teachers who have done this very thing. And Paul says to those who desecrate the temple of God, God's holy people, God's home, they had better come to their senses and repent. Otherwise, they will find out on the last, last day that not only their works, but they themselves will be burned up. 
That's why Paul pleads with the church here. That's why he says, please come to your senses in verse 18. Don't be deceived. If after all I've said in these chapters, you've heard this, anything, hear this. If you think you're wise, be a fool in the sight of God. God's wisdom and your wisdom, my wisdom, are on opposite poles, Paul says. That, this is why he appeals to Scripture here. Job 5, Psalm 94, the basic idea here is that in these verses that all human wisdom must submit itself to God's wisdom in God's way. In the Corinthian context, if they insist on building a church that's fixated on the glory of man, which is what they were doing, they're all complicit in the desecration of God's temple. Now, Grace City Church, we speak often, or at least I speak often, but so do you too. I've, I've heard you say this. We need revival among us. We want revival among us. But surely... The embers of revival are stoked wherever the church recovers her true identity. The embers of revival are stoked when the church recovers their identity that they are the people of the cross who gather to behold the glory of the Lord. Did you know that that's what we are? We are the people of the cross who gather to behold the glory of the Lord Sunday after Sunday, missional community after missional community. This is a helpful exercise in your hearts. In my heart, let's answer this question. Why do we gather on Sunday mornings? Why do we come together on Wednesdays or Tuesdays or Thursdays? Is it purely force of habit? Is it because we're so busy we have to mark off these days on our calendars so we go to those places on those days because it's a habit? It's a rhythm? We can rhythmize ourselves to death. Is it because we need community? Do we come together because we need people time, friends? Or do we come together because when we do, at every opportunity, the Spirit of God is in our midst in a unique way that He's not when we're apart. Do we come together because the Spirit of God is present in a unique way that He's not when we listen to a sermon on a podcast? Or when we gather in a stadium or a concert or any other kind of group? When we gather, friends, the Spirit is here for one big reason. That's to take of what is Christ and give it to me and you. That doesn't happen like it does here when we're apart. Paul prayed for the Ephesian church that they would have the strength to comprehend the love of Christ. How? Together with all the saints. Gathering is for grasping. Friends, this isn't a show. This is not a community center. This assembly, this gathering, is one of the few places in Wilmington this morning where God is present. Among this, this place, this people, God is here. And where God is, we are transformed. 
He makes us into a people who build things fit for his kingdom, who build things that pass the fire test. Dear ones, do you know what this means? This means that we need to stop seeing ourselves as a me and instead as a we. that sink in a moment. The Corinthian problem arose because they were individualistic. And everybody in this room is an American. And you live in a culture built on individualism. It's all about me. So why are we surprised when we don't make it about we? Paul says, do not be deceived. We are deceived when we as Christians see our lives only in the context of me and not we. When we go about making decisions that benefit me, not considering how it affects we. Incidentally, we can do this in our marriages, we can do this in our relationships, we can do this in our parenting, but Paul is talking about the church. And when we do, friends, we become isolated. Now listen to me. Listen to me. Isolation is the gentle veil behind which sin breathes. It's a gentle veil because it's comfortable. But it is a veil. And it hides. And that's the seedbed for sin. Ask any spouse who's committed adultery. Ask any man who has a pornography problem. Isolation. Isolation. Grace of the Church, do we know who we are? Do we know who we are? Do we know that we are people of the cross who come together to behold the glory of Christ? Is our times together to us the most important time in our calendar? It should be because that's when we visit with God. Or do we see ourselves as a me before we? If we are, we're building with wood, hay, and straw. Things that will burn up on the last day. We don't preach sermons here just to get through book of the Bible so we can all leave feeling better about ourselves. Jim Aaron and I preach and teach because we want you, we need to hear, we need to hear what God has to say to us. This is the place where the gospel is proclaimed and the spirit is at work and that trickles down into all of our relationships together. Oh, and it's going to trickle down because guess what? When you put a bunch of sinners together, you're going to have opportunity. We are going to sin against one another. But when we do, if the main thing is the main thing, the sacrifice of Jesus will be the catalyst for our mercy and forgiveness. And that is a beautiful thing.
Friends, can you see the beauty of the gospel behind the gentle veil? Not well. The veil of me? Paul says, don't be deceived. So you have a responsibility. Be careful how you build. You have an identity. Realize who you are. And finally, generosity. The last word, generosity. Paul wants this church to realize what they have, to realize what God has done for them. Listen to verse 21 to 23. What a high point this is in Paul's argument. Summary. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Amen. So here, Paul is finally summarizing his argument. He's getting ready to end his argument. He'll end at the end of chapter 4. We have a few more weeks to go. Basically, he's saying here, so based on all the above, Dear Corinthians, dear readers, would you please stop putting your confidence in mortal men? Stop using other people to puff yourself up. Why? 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 Because you already have all the things that you so badly crave. All things are yours. And he says it, I love how he says it twice. Just because he knows we have thick skulls. All things are yours. Now, before we talk about that for just a moment, I want you to notice Paul is always thinking about the future. He's, he's always looking toward the final day when rewards will be given and he and his friends will be in the presence of Jesus face to face forever. That's what he's thinking about. That's what he's talking about. So, so, so then what's the cure for an unhealthy meism, an unhealthy self-focused Focus, here it is, says Paul, see what is to come for you. Seeing what God is preparing for those who love him. Seeing how God intends to use every good or bad experience that the Christian endures to prove his love. Seeing things from an eternal perspective. All things are yours, he says to his readers. Each of the men that you've been forming unhealthy cliques around you, you say, I'm of Paul, and you say, I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Paul. He says, no, 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 you have it all wrong. Brothers and sisters, they belong to you. They belong to you. In fact, everything does. Even those things you believe are a threat. Notice the list that he gives there. The world in all its fallenness. Life, death, and all the fear that comes with aging and sickness and hardships of all sorts. The present, the future, and all its uncertainties and all its unknowns. No, Paul says, God is working forcing these things to work for your good. How do you know? Well, verse 23 tells us. 
Because at the end of the day and at the beginning of the day, me and Michelle started saying that, the beginning of the day, you belong to Christ. Everything you can see and everything you can't see falls under his, his jurisdiction. Everything, everything is a tool in his hands to work good for his people. Dear ones, God's people may be a bunch of nobodies in the eyes of the world, but we possess everything because God did not spare his son, amen, Brian, for reading that verse in Romans 8.32. We possess everything. In Christ, God has lavished on us all things for the express purpose of strengthening the foundation upon which we stand, which is Him. Everything, everything is ours. You know what that means? That means we can learn from people who belong to other theological camps. Oh, I know that goes against us Reformed people. You can learn something from the Wesleyans, Pentecostals, the Lutherans. Uh-oh. All things are yours. It means we can find cause for worship. Someone's going to email me about this, but I'm going to say it anyway. We can find cause for worship in a song that is not expressly Christian. It means we can observe the beauty of the world that God has made in a way that no unbeliever can because we know what's beyond this present moment. And friends, it means we can be forgotten just like Jesus was. It means that when people don't recognize the gifts and talents we have, that we think God has given to us for the express purpose of being a little savior in this world and nobody sees it, we can say, you know what? It's okay. It's okay. It means we can be rejected when we hold forth the foolish wisdom of God in a world that tells you, you can do better. Try harder. Be a better person. You got this, girl. You got it, bro. It means at the end of the day, we don't have to be like Mr. Schuler and waste our energies trying to build ministries and lives that are outwardly impressive, but in reality, lack real substance. Friends, what are we building today? Are we building that which lasts? Are we building with gold and silver and precious stones? Are we building that which will pass the fire test? Or will our works be burned up someday? May we build that which lasts. We now have an opportunity to apply what we've just learned, apply Paul's words by now receiving a, a means of grace in this wafer and in this juice, which is a symbol of the blood that was shed for us, the life that was given for us. We have a chance to receive that now and think about what he's done 
as we reflect back on this text. So Aaron, would you please come that we might partake?